You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, for this week, I have to first thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and I really could not do this show without them. So for this week, I have to thank Michael Samael, Nat Ward, F.V., Elizabeth Washburn, and Nixie Lionheart. Thank you so much. You are keeping this show going. I believe in bringing long-form, interesting conversations with smart people to the public every week for free. But in order to do that, I need your help. This is a one-man show. I do all of the editing, all of the booking, all of the recording, all of the writing. It is a part-time job, in addition to all the other work I do. So every little bit helps. And you can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for just a dollar a month. You get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with Timothy McPherson, former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic. And we talk about whatever's going on in the world. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, Jonathan Rausch, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. All right. Well, so we, we've spent about the past 30 minutes battling with our digital overlords, trying to get the internet to work and software to work. The um, uh, construction down the road knocked out my internet and power literally minutes before we were supposed to record. And then and it's just been a mess. So thank you so much for being so long suffering. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to make it work. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate you being here. So you wrote a book called The Constitution of Knowledge, and I listened to it on Audible after listening to some interviews that you did with people like Andrew Sullivan. And it's a it's an extraordinary book. And it was really, really illuminating for me. It was incredibly helpful for me in understanding our current time. So before we get into the book, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Jonathan. Friends and family call me John. So you're welcome to do that. I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona, and went to public high school, private college at Yale. Somewhere in there, I realized I didn't have the talent to become a musician, but I wanted to communicate. And so I became a journalist, but I also did work starting in my undergraduate years and then continuing in history and philosophy of science. From my teenage years, I was fascinated with what's the difference between truth and falsehood and how do we know and how do we decide? That became the subject of a book I wrote in 1993 called Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought. Um, I went away, did other things for a while, worked on gay marriage. I'm gay. Then realized starting five or six years ago that we were seeing a new epistemic crisis. That's a crisis about knowing the difference between truth and falsehood and facts and fiction, getting confused, being undermined. 
and went back to the drawing board and produced a second book called The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defensive Truth, which I think is why I'm here today. It is indeed. And it's a remarkable book. But before we talk about that, could you... So you've you've been studying this and you've been thinking about how do we as the body politic come to understand the world around us and how do we find a consensus in a diverse, pluralistic, liberal society? You've been thinking about this for a long time. So before we talk about the constitution of knowledge, let's talk about kindly inquisitors, which I feel like lays the groundwork for the constitution of knowledge. What was the problem that you were addressing in Kindly Inquisitors? Well, Kindly Inquisitors started work on it in, I think, 1989, 1990. It was finally published in 1993. And the big problem back then was starting to be what was then known as political correctness. Now, this is a generation or more ago, but it's still pretty relevant. And I identified, well, the first thing I did is say, we have a system for making knowledge in a prosperous, peaceful, free, and knowledgeable society. I called it liberal science. And I said, it's, it's like liberal democracy or market economies because it's rules-based. It's not based on fiat by rulers. And it's decentralized and it's impersonal. So people are interchangeable. You know, Anyone can vote, anyone can trade, and anyone can bring empirical evidence. And I said, that's liberal science and it's our greatest and most successful social system. And then I said it's under attack, and I identified some major attacks. But, but probably the two most important were what I called egalitarian and what I called humanitarian. And egalitarians were people who said, basically, all ideas are created equal, and it's all a power struggle. And so the most marginalized should have special privileges in telling the rest of the world what's true and what's false. And that's that undermines the whole premise of liberal science, which is that people are interchangeable and who you are shouldn't matter, apart from credentials which are earned. And the mm. second big attack, I thought, was humanitarian attack. And this was often, though not always, well-intentioned, but the idea was words can hurt, bad ideas can wound, they can cause harm in society, they can cause harm in individuals, so they should be punished. And I pointed out that once you start punishing words that wound, criticism is often hurtful. And that's how we get knowledge. So what these people were really out to do was substitute their own authoritarian rule for, for liberal science, for knowledge as we know it. Mm. So that was Kindly Inquisitors. And that framework and that structure, that architecture is now folded into the new book, Constitution of Knowledge. But, but the new book tries to take it a, a long step further. Yeah. Now, so those two attacks on liberal science and liberal science being kind of our, our our decentralized collective way of coming to understand the fact of the matter. You you mentioned humanitarian and egalitarian. Is there an element of truth to 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 either of those? Like, it, are they? getting at something that is true in your mind or something that might be worth examining or listening to, but maybe getting at it in the wrong way or going about it in the wrong way? 
Well, there are versions of both of them that fit very well within liberal science and that liberal science practices every day. The version of the egalitarian one is, of course, liberal science is itself egalitarian because the color of your skin, your gender, where you live, what language you speak shouldn't matter. If you've got the evidence, if you've got the arguments, you should be able to contribute. Um, and peer review, for example, is, is blind. So if the system is followed, it's very egalitarian. So that part of that critique is true, but these folks were radical egalitarians. They were trying to pursue social justice by actively privileging the points of view of people or groups that they believed were marginalized. And that turns real egalitarianism upside down because it says, you know what? People of a certain skin color, certain gender, sexuality, you name it, could be nationality, could be ideology. These people are privileged and they're qualified and you're not. Uh, I think there's no merit in that. It's, it's a dangerous ancient idea. It's basically a form of tribalism. My tribe can talk, yours, your tribe can't. And guess who's going to decide? I am. Hmm. Um, humanitarian challenge. Once again, there is a soft version of that which fits very neatly in liberal science. And that's the notion that if you care about the pursuit of truth, knowledge, social peace, even justice, you want to try to work non-coercively to persuade people to your side. And that's how you want the system to work. You don't want it to be based on, on force and violence. And to do those things, normally, for the most part, you want to try to be civil. You want to try to attack or question or challenge not the other person's right to exist or right to participate, but their ideas. So things like be civil, avoid ad hominem arguments. That's very much a part of liberal science. And in fact, people spend years, they go to high school and college and grad school, learning the protocols of how, and for example, in a scientific or scholarly article, you don't start with the phrase like, you'll remember this from Saturday Night Live, Jane, you ignorant slut. Mm -hmm. You start from a position of respect. Um, and all of that is baked in. And in fact, liberal science is by far the most respectful and civil forms of formal discourse that we've got. But that's very different from what I call the humanitarian challenge, which basically says it doesn't matter you know, if you're civil or uncivil. If I think that your views are harmful, I can censor them or I can sign or chill you or punish you in mm. some way. Your view may be unsafe. For example, they may cause me trauma, or at least I can claim they cause me trauma. I can say that they're socially unjust, but with any of these claims, I should be able to shut down the dialogue, shut down the conversation. And again, that is never permissible mm. in liberal science. First rule of liberal science is fallibilism. In other words, anyone could be wrong, so no one gets to end the debate. Say it's all over. We know. Go away. And the second rule is the empirical rule, which says everyone needs to be checked by someone else preferably someone with a different point of view, and preferably it should not matter who you are. Mm. You know, there's something so counterintuitive about it, and I, I regularly felt this way reading your book of, of it almost like chafing up against my human nature and my natural impulses to try to silence or try to, or, you know, I am, I am queer, I thinking of, 
about how I often want to protect, you know, say trans people from um, language that's hurtful to them. And I think a lot of people have that natural impulse to want to protect or shelter or not entertain certain arguments that they deem as as profoundly wrong. There is something incredibly counterintuitive and innovative about it that that seems to chafe very much against human nature. Well, you put your figure on it, Stephen. Do you pronounce? Do you prefer Stephen? Steve? Yeah, Stephen. Stephen. You put your figure finger, excuse me, on possibly the greatest challenge that that liberal science or what I now call the constitution of knowledge faces, which is it's profoundly counterintuitive. The idea that ideas and speech and thought that is offensive, blasphemous, heretical, obnoxious, wrongheaded, or prejudiced, that speech of this kind should not only be allowed, but should be affirmatively protected is, I think, without exception, the single most counterintuitive social idea of all time, bar none. And the only thing that saves it is that it's also the single most successful social idea of all time, bar none. But this means that every day people like me and maybe you, if you're in favor of of free speech. um, Very much so, yeah. And our children and their children and their grandchildren will have to get up every morning for the rest of time and defend this system, liberal science. They'll have to defend it from scratch. And Mm. and we just have to be cheerful about that because we got a great case to make and we're doing actually extraordinarily well. But this will... This will never come naturally. And if you think of it, market economies don't really come naturally. You have to trust prices that are set in faraway places by complete strangers. You have to trust that this little piece of paper is, you know, is actually worth something. So all of these systems, these liberal systems that are based on rules and interoperable people in faraway places and dealings with total strangers, they're all very counterintuitive. And for that reason, they are all vulnerable to attack. Absolutely. And, you know, I so I'm part of a minority religion. Uh, I am a member of the Satanic Temple. I'm also gay. So being a member of a minority religion and being a sexual minority, I have a particularly vested interest in protecting free speech (laughs) because free speech is the institution. It is the it is the principle that protects people like me. And if we set the precedent for violating free speech, this is why I'm such an obnoxious free speech bro and probably really annoy every, <laughs> everyone online. This is why I'm, I'm such a, you know, a, a persistent advocate of free speech, because if we set the precedent for violating free speech for, you know, in the words of the fourth tenet, infringing upon the speech of others, infringing on the rights of others, then we forgo our own. And I feel like that is particularly true of minorities who have a lot to lose if we lose our free speech. And I, who will be the first ones to be turned on? It's going to be the weird ones. <laughs> it's, going, it's going to be the weird fringe ones that make society uncomfortable. You know, Stephen, 
What breaks my heart today more than I think anything else is that so many either members of minority groups or activists who claim to speak for minority groups have turned against free speech and now denounce it as a tool of oppression or capitalism or or what have you. Um, they think it's conservative. They think it's oppressive, or, or at least they claim they think that. And And that breaks my heart because... I am a, a homosexual American. I was born in 1960. And in the world I grew up in, we were reviled from the pulpit as a stench in God's nostrils by Judaism, Christianity, Islam. We were the sin that could not even be named in public. That's how shameful we were. We were regarded by the psychiatric profession as mentally ill. It was there in the diagnostic manual. It was illegal for us to have intimate sexual relations in the privacy of our own homes. We could not work for the government. We could not get security clearances on and on and on. And here I am. I've been married to a man, Michael, for over 10 years now in one lifetime. And the way we did that, the only way we did that was free speech the ability to make our case. We got that ability in 1958 in a Supreme Court decision called One versus Oleson. Most people have never heard of it, but it overturned government censorship of gay speech, gay magazine. And we started making our case that year and it took a while, but we changed minds. So dissidents the world over, Soviet Union, Frederick Douglass in America, Hosea Williams, Martin Luther King's great organizer, John Lewis, another King Lieutenant, all of them have said again and again that, as Lewis put it, without free speech, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. And it, it breaks my heart that people who stand for social justice are abandoning that principle now. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think so many of my comrades on the left, what is it about free speech that so many on the left are turning against? Well, I'm not sure it's actually all that complicated. The dynamics are that when you're a dissenter, when you're a minority, it's pretty clear to you why free speech is so important. Mm. When you are a functional majority, when you control the terms of the debate, when you have the cultural commanding heights, then these free speakers, these people saying these obviously untrue things, they're a nuisance. They're just a social problem and they're getting in the way of doing what you and most other people know to be right. Well, there was a time in America when the left was in places like academia, for example, and newsrooms, pretty marginalized and tended to be left-leaning groups like the ACLU that supported free speech. ACLU mercifully still does, but there are a lot of communities now, especially in the academic world, but also increasingly in the world of journalism and corporate human relations um, and others, where left-wing ideas essentially control or dominate the conversation. Stuff like anti-racism, support for affirmative action, LGBTQ rights broadly defined, and so forth and so on. Once you're in a position where the water around, where you're the fish in the water and the water around you is predominantly agreeing with you, suddenly it's no longer obvious 
why you should tolerate these annoying conservatives with mm. these antisocial and simply wrong-headed opinions. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Stephen, the point you started with, which is so important, which is this idea is counterintuitive. And once someone thinks they have the right answer and has the power to impose that answer, why waste time allowing these, allowing nonsense, harmful nonsense to propagate? So I think a lot of the left are well-intentioned activists who think, well, you know, these are just bad ideas on the right and it's just time to stamp them out. Right, right. And you think I'm right about that, by the way? I yeah, I do. I think that I think that the left has made a lot more progress than maybe we often you, you know give ourselves credit for. This is the best time to be alive <laughs> as a gay person <laughs> in, in maybe world history. Like I wouldn't want to live in any other time now as a gay man than right now. And that's that's just unprecedented. And so th there's been this incredible rights movement that you've seen, you know, you as as an elder gay, as a gay activist who is kind of at the front lines of this battle. But this is I don't know. We've seen so much progress. You know, I, I say this as the Roe v. Wade as Roe v. Wade was reversed and lots of people are very nervous about maybe gay marriage being next. I don't know what you think about that or if that's a possibility, but a lot of people are nervous about that. So maybe that's a threat. I don't I don't know. It could be. So, of course, there is there is always more work to do. But the work that has been done is simply unprecedented. Like this is the best time to be alive as a gay man. It makes sense that with that progress comes a taking uh, comes uh, you know taking speech for granted. So I think your diagnosis might be correct. Yeah. Yeah. It just means that you and I have to work every day to try to instill the notion among the culturally powerful, whichever side they may happen to be on, that the voice of the dissident is our most cherishable resource. Because that dissident just might be right. We might have something to learn from that person. And if we silence that person, we make ourselves ignorant. Hmm. I feel like this leads into a broader issue that you tackle in the Constitution of Knowledge. So free speech is, of course, a central piece of what you call the Constitution of Knowledge. But... Free speech, and, and this, I think, was the big revelation for me reading your book. Free speech alone is not, how do I say this? How do I want to say this? Free, it's not enough. Yeah, yeah, free, yeah, free speech alone is not enough. And so it's like having the right, I, I, I don't know, I was, as I was listening to your book, I was trying to come up with like good metaphors for this. So it's like having the right to drive or something, you know, being able to drive. Well, there's immense freedom with that. But free speech without the the institutions and principles that come from the Constitution of Knowledge, it's like having having drivers but no traffic lights <laughs> or something. And so free speech is not enough. There have to be the additional structures in order for it to work. So what are those additional things? that make up the constitution of knowledge. Well, I love the traffic analogy and and I've used it myself. Mm. You know that that I used to kind of think that 
that social organization, liberal social organization, meaning rules-based societies that are impersonal rules like the ones we have, that they just kind of organize themselves. And then I realized that's like saying, well, transportation is a great thing, so let's just put a bunch of cars out there. Everyone will have a car and we've, we've solved the problem, which kind of forgets that you need the roads and the traffic lights and the rules and the driver's ed schools and the system to punish people who break all those rules and on and on and on. If the traffic system's working, we kind of take all that for granted and we just think of a bunch of people out there in their cars. But if you don't have all of that structure, you don't have traffic. You just have a traffic jam. Mm. And the same thing is true. And that's that's the big jump that I made in this second book. The, the first book, Kindly Inquisitors, it was pretty laissez-faire. It said that the way knowledge forms is we, we criticize each other's views and out of that criticism arises knowledge. And that's certainly true. It was a marketplace of ideas kind of idea. Perfectly true, but incomplete. Because it turns out if you just have people randomly saying whatever they want to say in whatever way they want to say it, you got Twitter. You don't have advanced toward knowledge. You don't have advanced toward anything. Or 4chan. Even worse. Or 4chan. You typically, you have a race to the bottom as people posture and seek social status and try to win attention by insulting other people or appealing to tribal loyalties and saying, you know, trolling, falsehoods, all of that stuff. Those are natural human tendencies. That's not just a function of social media. This is a very old problem. How do you organize societies socially so that they can turn disagreement into knowledge? And it turns out the breakthrough way to do that is the constitution of knowledge. Mm. It's about the same age, more or less, a little older than the U.S. Constitution. It's based on the same basic ideas, which are the United States Constitution says there's one way and only one way to, to make national political decisions, basically laws and decisions about who's in office. You're going to have to compromise with people who are different from yourself. And people don't like to do that. It's a pain in the ass to compromise with wrongheaded, stupid people. But what the founders understood is that by forcing compromise, you could take diversity and make it a friend of democracy and stability. You could force together a lot of different views and incentivize people to come out with policies that aren't perfect, but reach a social consensus and do that dynamically through constantly new voices and new positions coming in. It's a system of genius. James Madison is the great thinker behind it. And it's non-coercive because you can't use force to take power. And it's open-ended because if you don't like this election, you have another election and you've got one after that. Well, the constitution of knowledge works on exactly the same kind of principles. I tell people this is not constitution of knowledge. It's not a metaphor, an analogy, a simile, a literal a literary device. It's an actual thing. It is rules and institutions. You can write them down. You can identify the institutions. And they force persuasion as the only way to make knowledge. And that's a breakthrough. Until the constitution of knowledge, if you wanted to make uh, knowledge in a divided society, you typically won power. And then you ex executed or exiled or ostracized people who didn't believe it who didn't agree with you. Hmm. Along comes the constitutional knowledge and says, no, we're going to have a decentralized system. You're going to have to persuade people with views and biases that are very different than your own. And you're going to have to use that with methods like 
using reason, logic, evidence, experiments that anyone can replicate. And not until you've been through that process and have made those converts and negotiated with them, and they're saying, well, your hypothesis isn't right, but how about this other hypothesis? Maybe it's a merger of the two. Aha, let's test that one. And gone through all the structures that are involved there. Those are you know, academic articles and in journalism, it's, it's journalistic articles. Law and government are also key parts of the system. After you persuaded those people, you have knowledge and you can put it in the textbooks. It's very much like the U.S. Constitution. It's successful for very much the same reasons. Um, it brings not only knowledge, but it also brings freedom. It brings peace, but it requires... Sorry, this has been such a long response, but there's so much meat here. No, this is perfect. It requires rules and institutions. Freedom is not enough. People need to understand, for example, that we mentioned this earlier in a different context. When I write an article that I want other people to pay attention to and focus on, criticize, replicate, cite, I don't begin it with Stephen, you ignorant slut, making personal <laughs> attacks. Um, I don't make up evidence. I don't cite unfounded conspiracy theories. I have to do things like structure it in a way that I can state a clear hypothesis in an impersonal way. I have to indicate what kind of evidence I'm adducing and what kind of evidence would prove me wrong. I have to show some understanding of the existing literature and where my ideas fit in. I have to suggest an agenda for future research. And then I'm probably going to have to go to a conference and present it and revise it. And then once it's published, it's going to be reviewed if I'm lucky and further modified. Well, think about all of that structure and all the years of acculturation and education it takes to do that. And you realize all of those structures, that's what turns the disagreement part, the free speech part, into the objective knowledge part, the stuff that goes into the textbooks, and now the critical turn. That stuff, the norms and institutions are what are so greatly and gravely under attack right now. Sorry, that went on and on and on. No, 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 no. That was that was perfect. And also, while you were talking, it occurred to me that I, I think that the erosion of those norms and institutions is is part of what leads to is one of many things that leads to people's skepticism of free speech, because I don't know if you saw the documentary Into the Storm, Q Into the Storm on HBO, but Basically, it's an it's an investigation into QAnon, and this guy named Fred, who developed 8chan, he is the programmer for 8chan. He said, "You cannot see in that documentary." He said, "You cannot see the consequences of free speech and still support it." Basically, and I've been thinking about that a lot. How people see what is celebrated as free speech on the internet and there is kind of a an appropriate revulsion towards it and the reason is and this is the missing piece is because 
There are no traffic lights <laughs> and speed limits. The constitution of knowledge is not there. It is freedom of speech. It is free speech without the constitution of knowledge, without those norms in place that determine uh, you know, rules of discourse. And I think that people have, some people have such an aversion to free speech, especially people in my generation, because their first exposure to the concept of free speech were, you know, was, were the chans or Gamergate or what have you. And I think that that's another element there. Yeah. And it's not just friendly amendment. You're exactly right. But it's, it's not just the particular items of speech which people read and don't like which is creating this backlash this distaste i mean you know we all see stuff that we don't like that's said it's it's that the environment the epistemic environment of 8chan for example or for that matter much of twitter is so toxic it's not the one statement it's the fact that in those environments the incentives the way the rules and norms work are you want to get eyeballs, you want to get attention. And the way you do that is by being outrageous or attacking someone or abusing someone. You know, they say enragement is engagement. Yep. So it's not just that you have a few things people don't like. It's that you've created these toxic environments. There, there's an analogy, a historical analogy to American journalism, newspapers in the late 19th century, which had become basically toxic waste dumps of hyper-partisanship and fake news to the point where people were basically had lost confidence in what was in the newspapers and the business model was starting to suffer. It was in long-term decline. And what happened then is some people said, we got to get our act together and we've, we've got to formulate some rules of the road in this industry. And they did. So in the early part of the 20th century, I think it was 1915, the American Society of Newspaper Editors is founded. And the first thing it does is promulgate ethics codes for journalists. You can look them up. They're online. And there's, there are things that seem obvious now, like, you know, don't make stuff up. Be fair and objective. Uh, care about what's true. Run corrections if you're wrong. Well, that's obvious now, but someone had to think of it. And then you had the opening of journalism schools, which begin training people and saying, this is a profession. You know, this is not just a form of entertainment. And there's some values here and some forms of integrity that you need to observe. And then you had prizes set up. The Pulitzer is the greatest and, and ironically was in the name of one of the yellow press media barons. But you had lots of prizes which said, we're going to reward you if you do great reporting. That's true. So the, the quality of the journalism begins to improve. The audiences start to like it. The advertisers start to like it. You migrate the business model toward a truth-based, reality-based form of journalism. And within 30 or 40 years, you've gone from uh, William Randolph Hearst to uh, who's the famous World War II correspondent, Edward R. Murrow and the golden age of fact-based American journalism. So it takes a while, but that was a form of constitution building. That was American journalism getting on board with the constitution of knowledge. And the question now is, can we do something like that with social media? Um, there's an effort to do that, which is encouraging. Facebook's oversight board 
is a very interesting and important experiment in trying to create some transparent, accountable rules of the road for Facebook initially. But if it works out, maybe maybe more. Um, and there are professional associations springing up. There's a new one. The I think it's the International Association of Trust and Safety Officers beginning to develop best practices around how you can protect trust and safety, including epistemic trust and safety, meaning truthfulness in online communities. You've got the development of the International Fact-Checking Network. Now over 350 independent fact-checking organizations and they have credentialing and certification and things they have to do and show, be nonpartisan, show who your funders are, um, show, show your work, all your sources. And those are increasingly hooking up to social media companies so that they can do some checking of what appears online. So we're in very early stages of beginning to build some rules of the road, some traffic laws. Will we succeed? I don't know. But at least I think compared to five years ago, we're moving in the right direction. I hope so. And I just hope that it isn't, you know, the printing press on steroids. You know, everyone wants to point out to me, I'm kind of a doomer when it comes to social media and maybe too much. So, you know, I'm open to that possibility, but I generally agree with people like Jonathan Haidt that like we're we're in a very challenging time and people always point out to me like, well, you know, the the printing press was a big shakeup in in civilization and we got through that just fine. I'm like, <laughs> no, we didn't. We we could yeah. say that now. <laughs> you a know, third, we, a third of the population of what's today's Germany possibly was murdered yeah as a result of that so yeah we would like exactly. to avoid that we we i would very much like like maybe the printing press is not the best example of what to shoot for because <laughs> you know it basically resulted in 300 years of horrific religious war right so you in your book you talk about two specific threats to the constitution of knowledge in our digital age. One of those is troll culture from the right, and then another one of those is cancel culture from the left. And both of these are basically breaking the traffic rules. They're breaking the, um, they're, they're corroding the constitution of knowledge in their own way. So let's start with troll culture. What is troll culture online and why is it a threat? Well, it's not just online. Um, it long predates online, but basically it's misinformation and especially disinformation. So suppose you're, I don't know, Vladimir Putin, and you want to dominate the information space, but out-and-out -out censorship in the age of the internet just is not practical. There are just too many ways to circulate information. Well, there's another tactic you can use, and it was very beautifully and succinctly explained by Stephen Bannon, an aide to Donald Trump, as flood the zone with shit. Mm. You pour out so many falsehoods, half-truths, exaggerations, conspiracy theories, and the like, that people, after a while, they, they don't know which end is up. They don't know what's true or what's false. They're hearing all kinds of things. Those things are not even consistent with each other. You create confusion, disorientation, cynicism, ultimately demoralization. People throw up their hands. They say, I don't know what's true anymore. Maybe the election was stolen in 2020. Maybe it wasn't. We'll never know. 
and other people are just out and out to see, well, the election was stolen in 2020. I'm seeing it everywhere. There must be something to it or else I wouldn't be seeing it. We see this exemplified with astounding skill and success in the Stop the Steal campaign in 2020, the most successful disinformation campaign that's ever been run against uh, the American people. And not by foreigners, not by Vladimir Putin, but by Donald Trump and his minions and associates in conservative media, the Republican Party and the grassroots. Um, they flooded the zone with, with every conceivable conspiracy theory they could come up with. And when those were shot down, each one was replaced with two or three more. In Arizona, my home state, uh, they claim the election was stolen. They actually solicited their own audit in addition to four other audits that had been done when at, um, this was in Maricopa County, Arizona, when that audit found that the count was accurate, that in fact, if anything, Trump's vote was slightly overstated. Donald Trump got on national TV and said, you know what? I was wrong. Arizona was not stolen. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Sorry, Stephen. That's not what he said. He went to a rally and instead he said, the result of the audit in Arizona shows that I won an out and out fabrication. Mm -hmm. And then he said, and by the way, it's not just Marac Maricopa County, Pima County was stolen. Yeah. Completely out of the blue. So this is how this works. You flood the zone with shit. This is a very sophisticated tactic. It's mastered by the Russians, but now picked up by Americans in a big way. And it's, it's hard to cope with, even if you understand it, but impossible to cope with if you don't understand it. Mm. Um, this is like swamping the traffic laws so that all the, all the traffic lights are flashing every color at once and everyone's driving on every side of the street and so forth. It's like replacing the U.S. Constitution and systematic structure of institutions and steps you have to go through with. Make it up, anything goes Calvin Ball. This is something we're not accustomed to dealing with because, as you mentioned, we're accustomed to dealing with censorship, you know, free speech. This is, in a sense, in a way, it's about a cancerous version of free speech, hmm. free speech without any of the structures that you need to help people sort through it all. Hmm. Yeah, and... I feel like I'm I kind of against my better judgment. I was just talking I I've I've been talking about this quite a bit on the show how I I don't know what to do online except kind of make a retreat from it, which is probably in the end a good choice, but I'm so cynical now about literally every single thing that I see on Twitter, on social media, even if it might be true. And but it's a kind of cynicism that doesn't feel healthy to me. It's a kind of cynicism that I don't like. It doesn't feel oh, it's good. An, it, it's an induced state. Yeah, and it means I, the bad I guys hate it. Won I hate it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The like, goal of this exercise is to make people cynical and demoralized. So they retreat from the public sphere, which means they're no longer in the way of whoever is the demagogue or dictator or con man who wants to run things. Yep. And that's exactly the state that they're trying to, to induce. And the answer to that is, I don't, you know, I don't care if you're on social media or not personally, but for you and me and people like us, 
to understand the constitution of knowledge, understand these attacks on it, and begin in whatever sphere where we have some personal influence in our own institutions, in our own lives, even just in our own behavior online, what we retweet, for example, to mm. begin upholding the norms and values of the constitution of knowledge and insisting that other people do so too. And that means like, don't make stuff up. Just for example, don't retweet stuff that, that you don't have on really good authority is actually true. Mm. You know, if, if people stopped and used their brains for a couple of minutes, we'd have less of this nonsense. So some of this can be small. Some of these changes need to be much bigger, much more institutional. It goes all the way from the individual to the entire institution. Talk some about cancel culture. Now, I am aware that even using the phrase cancel culture might, you know, get some of my listeners' uh, hackles raised. But what's the threat that you see from cancel culture from the left? Well, I'm... I'm curious to ask you what what would raise hackles about this conversation with your your friends on the left. Before we turn to cancel culture, could I just add a footnote? Yes, please. That will help people be optimistic mm. or at least mm -hmm. hopeful. We are learning. We as a society and as individuals are learning and getting better at social media. And the U.S. government, in the form of the Biden administration, just conducted a textbook example of a successful anti-disinformation campaign in Ukraine. It will be studied for years to come to experts in the field. They got ahead of Russian disinformation for the first time, and they disarmed a lot of it with a tactic called pre-bunking, telling people what they're likely to see and actually deterring Putin from doing a lot of it. Hmm. So we are learning, and that's the key. Those are those big institutional changes we talk about. Okay, so we're about to talk about cancel culture. Why would that get you in trouble with your progressive friends? Like, what's their problem with this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's complicated. And whenever I talk about the concept of cancel culture, use the phrase cancel culture, talk about, you know, or try to allude to it with different language other than cancel culture, <laughs> it's... It's incredibly radioactive. And one reason I think is because it's perceived as a right wing talking point and to or a, or a distraction from the real problems which are happening on the right. And so people will say, you know, yeah, sure, there's dysfunction on the left, but you know, Trump is corroding democracy and, you know, the the theocratic right is, uh, you know, destroying women's rights and bodily autonomy in Missouri and Louisiana and whatever. So isn't it a misallegation of resources to care about this? To which to which my response is, well, a movement that can't be self-critical is a movement that's doomed to failure. And we can't if, if we are so scared to talk about this because of the because the right, the far right has weaponized cancel culture. If we're if we're so scared to examine our flaws because the right has has taken these terms, taken these words, cancel culture SJWs, whatever, and got and and distorted them and made them cancerous, then we're just doomed to failure if we can't self-correct. 
because of that. <laughs> we, a, a movement that can't self that that can't self reflect is a movement that's doomed to failure. But it's been a battle. I mean, it's been a struggle, and I feel really vindicated actually about by a uh, a piece that came out in the Intercept by Ryan Grimm. You might have seen it. Where he, he did, yes, yeah, it's great. Where you know, basically, he says that progressive meltdowns have stalled the nonprofit world, and these are nonprofits like the Sierra Club. I mean, really important nonprofits that have been at the fore at social of of social justice and and climate action and all this kind of stuff. We need these organizations to be able to to do what they need to do. But they can't because they're being stalled by these internal meltdowns. Um, so that's one thing that I point to. To but there's so much fear in in areas. To it, it, there, there's so much fear in my circles to talk about this or discuss it. Other people will try really hard to downplay it. They will say it doesn't exist, which I just don't have any patience for. I have zero patience for that. <laughs> Because if that just feels like gaslighting to me, that just feels like, you know, it's like it's it is fucking obvious that there is something very dysfunctional in certain parts of the left that really hurts people. If if anyone opens their eyes, look around on Twitter, look around at the nonprofit space, they will see it. And then to just deny it and say, oh, no, it isn't really happening or, oh, no, this is just accountability culture. That just feels like gaslighting. And that's how you push people to the right because people will feel resentful by because of that people will, and they'll be like well the right's talking about this the right is the ben shapiro is you know naming this but my own colleagues on the left can't and that i have seen that push people to further extremes and then i think the other the other thing that's that uh gets in the way of uh, people discussing it is um oh god damn it i just had that thought i i just lost that thought um well there's but, it'll, it'll come back to you there's oh 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 oh, oh there there it is there it is uh, also oh, you know there there's kind of the 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 identity issue where canceling the word canceling cancel culture the word woke all of these words originated from communities of color from online communities of color. And so I have I've heard people say, well, it isn't our language, it isn't our words. The, these aren't our words, so we shouldn't use them. And I want to re you know, I I'm one of those people who you know, actually cares about shit like that. Maybe not to the degree that other people do, but I do want to respect the origins of certain words and and so on and so forth. You know, that's good to know. However, I struggle with it when it feels like an attempt to remove the very ability for us to talk about it. And I'll respond to some of that very rich comment in just a minute, but let me ask you a follow-up question. Mm. Do you feel that in the past year or so you are seeing any, any change in attitudes on the progressive side toward more recognition that there is a problem? with canceling, with repression of alternative views, with backlash and resentment as a result, or you is it is it just the same? That's a really good question. I don't I hmm. I know that I've had lots of conversations behind the scenes. 
I, I know that I've done a lot of back channeling with people about the problem. And so those conversations do happen. And I will, I will say this, I'm not as, uh, I'm not as afraid as I was in 2020 and 2019. <laughs> so that's something, you know, I'm less afraid that when I hit publish on a post that my life will just be absolutely fucking ruined. Like I, I'm a, as a content creator, I live in terror. I really, really do. I live in absolute fear that anytime I hit publish on a podcast or an article that it will just absolutely ruin my life for a month <laughs> or what have you or longer or longer. Yeah. And, and I, and I don't feel that fear as much because and why I, don't you feel it as much? I think my audience has proven to me that they can hand that, that, they can handle disagreement. I, I'm still afraid of it. I'm also more confident now that a lot of my colleagues wouldn't completely abandon me because we've, we've talked about this. And so I, I think I have a, a bit more security, a bit more of a feeling of security than I did. So that if I, you know, interview someone like you or Helen Pluckrose or Katie Herzog or whoever, that my life won't just be completely destroyed. Could but you there's have Charles Murray on your show. Could I have Charles Murray? Mm-hmm. And survive socially? No, no, I don't think I could. How about Jordan Peterson? Maybe. I mean, it it depends on. It depends on how I would conduct the interview. I think. I would actually love to have Jordan Peterson on. I would be fascinated to talk to him. I, I, do, I avoid a lot of those conversations because I'm afraid of not conducting the interview well, right? So I'm... I, yeah, but that's a different issue. Yeah. The question is, would you be... Is it something you would want to do and otherwise would do, but you were too frightened to do? I am definitely too frightened to have Jordan Peterson on. And Charles Murray. I don't, I don't, Charles, Charles Murray is so radioactive that it like spooks me to even talk about him (laughs) because for anyone who knows about Charles Murray, it it spooks me to even bring his name up. Okay. How about, I'll stop this soon. I don't. No, no, no. This is, this is an interesting exercise. I do want want to say some things about cancel culture, but how about, oh man, I'm going to lose her name. Helen. She wrote the book on uh, on trans that takes oh, issue with Helen so Helen Joyce. No, I would never Helen I would, Joyce. I would never talk to her. I couldn't. I couldn't do that. I want to. I would love to. These are and and actually, this is this is one of the things that that has honestly made me consider giving up podcasting. I am getting so sick of having just safe conversations. They're so fucking boring. I've been doing this podcast for. Sorry, I'm I'm swearing a lot. I'm 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 so sorry. <laughs> um, um, I've been doing this podcast for five years. I'm getting so tired of having the same type of conversation over and over again. And I want to talk to people like Jordan Peterson and Helen Joyce and Jesse Single people who are genuinely interesting and compelling who I probably have some strong disagreements with or not but I I 
I live in in uh, a lot of fear of my fellow LGBTQ people, and that's uh, pretty distressing. And it honestly makes me sometimes just walk away. Like I would rather just leave than not have you know not have those interesting and challenging conversations. And wow, well, you just said that publicly. I did. You did, you did. If you if you publish this podcast, I assume you have not. You won't decide whether to publish it. But if you do, you'll have made that statement in public, and I will be very curious to see what, if any, kind of reaction you get from your audience. Students are saying in surveys, including progressive students, that they want to encounter conservative views more than they do on campus. They're saying they want more debate and open conversation than they're getting on campus. Professors at universities are saying the same thing and lamenting more and more and more and more publicly how difficult it is now to get students to be candid in the classroom because they're worried about social marginalization outside the classroom. Mm. So you said a few things along the along the way there that that I want to hit. The first is a point that your progressive friends make, which I think is right in a significant way, which is I think the bigger threat to American democracy and the constitution of knowledge right now is the threat from the right because it owns an entire political party, the biggest news network in the country, which is more important than social media in terms of spreading spreading falsehoods and lies and causing all these things. That's Fox News um, for people who are overseas. Yeah, Fox yeah. News, if you're wondering. And not everyone on Fox News. But you know, when Chris Wallace bails out because of what Sean Hannity's doing, you got a problem. Yeah. So, so yes, the right is the bigger problem right now. But I agree with you that we have to walk and chew gum. The right is 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 a heart attack, but the left, cancel culture is cancer because it's eating out the core of our institutions that are supposed to be in the business of robust argument and debate to keep ourselves honest, to show the rest of the world that we're honest, uh, to make our ideas better, and to show us when we've gone wrong and and erred. The point on which they're not right, and you are right, is cancel culture exists. It is not just accountability. It is not just you know wealthy white people being criticized and not liking it. We have survey after survey now that show consistently that over 60% of Americans are afraid to say what they think about politics uh, often or, or some of the time because of fear of social repercussions. A third of Americans across every ideological category, this is not a right-wing thing, it's also a progressive thing. A third of Americans say they're worried about losing their job or career opportunities if they state their true views about politics. Hmm. It's hard to compare, but scholars have tried, and it looks like in terms of chilling, that is people being unwilling to state their, their true views The level of chilling in the United States now is three to four times the level of 1953, 1954. In other words, it's three or four times the height of the McCarthy era. McCarthyism, right, yeah. Right. Now, these are not consistent with a culture of healthy criticism in which the problem is that Stephen Long or Jonathan Rauch feels that someone might say, hey, you're wrong about that, and here's why you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the evidence. I'm happy to receive that criticism. I think you are too. Absolutely. But what you described is something different. It's a climate of fear. And fear is not incidental here. Fear is the product. So what I, what I try to do in my book 
is help people understand that cancel culture is, although it differs from, um, in many ways, it, it's parallel to troll culture because it is a sophisticated form of cognitive warfare. It's about manipulating the social and media environment to change what we think, what we think it's safe to think, what we think others think in order to divide and demoralize us. So how does this work? What are they actually doing that's making you so afraid, getting inside your head and turning you into a version of yourself that you're probably not perfectly happy with? Oh, yeah. So, I, I hate this part of myself. <laughs> I yeah, really people, do. Yeah. People hate being in a toxified, manipulated, epistemic environment. Hmm. That's why the Soviet Union ultimately failed. You can only do this for so long. And that's one of the advantages that constitutional knowledge has. But what percentage of the American population would you guess are true blue progressives? You know, believe in, you know, I don't know, maybe use Latinx and LGBTQ and anti-racist, you know, the progressive, the progressive stuff, what percentage would you say are behind that? I'm sh I, I don't know, but from it, give me, just give me a guess. Order of magnitude. Uh, 10%? No, 5%? Small. Very You're in small. the right ballpark. It's okay. 8%. The 2018 hidden tribe study, which is a very good study. Okay. 8%. And, and by the way, that's the, that's the tribe that I, whenever I take that test, I, I score in. That's that's what my results always are. So, so that's good. So you're a true blue progressive. Yeah. But an interesting question is: this is only eight percent of the public. So why is it they're able to have such outsized influence, for example, on campuses and HR departments, intellectual culture, media, and so forth? Well, if you're a small group and you want to greatly amplify your influence and suppress the other side. What you can do is, is manipulate the apparent consensus. So it appears that everyone agrees with you and no one agrees with the other side. Humans are consensus-seeking animals. So if we're in a room full of people, this experiment's been done. And you give people an obvious visual test, and the answer is obvious, but you put, I don't know, seven actors in a room with an experimental subject. The seven actors all give the wrong answer, the obviously wrong answer, not even close. A third of the time, that last person in the room, the real experimental subject, will go along with the group despite the plain evidence of their own eyes. Mm. And in repeated episodes of this, repeated trials, 75% of people will go along with the group at least once. That means most of us hmm. will comport either our views or what we say are our views to match the perceived consensus around us. The key word there, though, is perceive. What if you can falsify that consensus? What if you can use social weapons like ostracism, for example, pylons, dragging on social media, investigations on a college campus. You could lose your job or you could be under a terrible investigation that paralyzes you for six months. What if it's just that people hate you very vocally? Well, then you begin to create what's called in psychology, a spiral of silence. I don't think anyone else thinks what I think, so I silence myself. Other people who think what I think think that I don't think what they think, so they silence themselves. Using these tactics, you see how clever, how sophisticated this is. Yeah. Using these tactics, a small group can make itself appear to be the big group. They can make it appear that everyone agrees with them, or at least if you disagree with them, that there must be something wrong with you. And people hmm. then internalize that. 
So, dude, what I'm telling you is you're being manipulated. Hmm. A small group of people, maybe a bigger share of your audience, but I doubt even that because I think many of your audience agree with you and are in the same boat you are. They've been intimidated and isolated by, uh, by canceling. Hmm. But I think you're being manipulated. And a lot of people are being manipulated. The good news is that I think more and more people are realizing that they're being manipulated, that these tactics of social coercion are being used not to foster an environment of open debate and criticism where you know, you make an error, you lose the argument and move on. They're instead being used to foster a climate of fear, of monoculture intellectually, and a climate where if you're even accused of being wrong on one occasion, or you know, it can be a lame joke, it can be anything. You lose your whole career. Some people never come back from, from this. Yeah. This is the opposite. This it's now called cancel culture. Um, cancel culture is the opposite of the constitution of knowledge. And it's very effective. So there's a lot of ways to fight back. But you know, I'm going to tell you that I hope that you would have one of those toxic radioactive people on your show. Um, because that's how we start to fight back. We start to realize we're being manipulated, we're being isolated, we're being demoralized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And listening to you talk is I'm just thinking back to times and you know, over the past two years, you know, especially since 2020, because that's when it got really challenging, where the the it felt like the pressure to to fall in line was incredibly powerful. And I try to follow the rule to never lie to to be in a position where if someone asks me point blank what i think about something i will tell them and there have been situations that i found myself in where to my shame i just lie because it's because it's basically like a don't hurt me cover <laughs> like like it and um and i hate that about myself and I hate being in that situation and I hate, you know, that that sense of corrosion of my character where I will, you know, be, in, you know, I'll, I'll be at dinner, I'll I'll be at a party I'll or whatever. Someone will ask me point blank something and I find that I just lie. I fucking hate that. It's it's a well, terrible thing to do and a way to live. Yeah, it is a terrible way way to live. Uh, you can ask someone who grew up in the Soviet Union, or you can ask a 62-year-old American homosexual who lied every day to himself and to all the people around him for 25 years about who he was and who he loved hmm. and who is spiritually and morally pithed, emptied out by that exercise. But, but here's the thing to remember. It is very hard for any one individual to stick their head above the parapet and say, I'm going to say what I believe and to hell with you counselors, because you, you could get your head shot off. Yeah. But it takes a surprisingly small number of people in a group to begin to do that. Because remember, the counselors are a small group of people. They can't get everyone fired. They can do it one at a time, maybe sometimes, but even that's getting harder. But you and a handful of other people on the left who are willing to say, you know, fuck this. We've been manipulated long enough. I'm going to have Helen Joyce on my show. Or I don't know, go get someone who believes that abortion is is a terrible moral sin and put that put them on your show. Get Pete Wayner. I don't know. He's Yeah. But but the point here is it doesn't take very many people to change 
to, to break up a spiral of silence. Because once someone realizes, hey, wait, there's someone else in the room who agrees with me, the dynamic of the spiral of silence can stop very quickly. So I mentioned the experiment where you put eight people in a room, seven are actors, they all claim to say the wrong answer, see the wrong thing, the eighth person goes along. You can do the same experiment, you change one small parameter, still seven actors and one actual subject in this room, but six of the answer of the actors give the obviously wrong answer. The seventh actor gives the right answer. What happens to the experimental subject? Knowing one other person in the room sees things the way you do, gives that person the confidence so that their compliance drops from about 30% to five to 10%. Now, remember, these are total strangers in this room, right? They're all just actors. You got there for this experiment. This isn't your friends, your family. All it takes is one stranger saying, I might not be crazy. One other person agrees with me to give us the courage to speak. So you can do that for someone. I can do that for someone. I call this being a reality anchor. We can do this and it doesn't take that many. And I think it's starting to happen. I think kind of peak cancellation was probably about 20 years ago. Uh, sorry, not 20 years ago. Getting tired. Probably about two <laughs> years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think their power is diminishing. I think it's getting harder to get people fired, for example, than it was two years ago. Hmm. Got a long way to go. But, you know, I think people are starting to wise up that they're being manipulated and used. Yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. I want to. I want you to know how much I've enjoyed the conversation, though. Yeah, yeah. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I so appreciate you taking the time. It really means a lot to me. Yeah. Well, don't wimp out. It's 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 not going to take everyone to begin breaking through this ossified culture. It just takes someone. Mm -hmm. For people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Well, of course, Amazon or any bookstore near you for the Constitution of Knowledge. The book is better than the movie. <laughs> I have a website, jonathanrausch.com. I don't put all my stuff up there, but I put what I think are the more important articles. So you can explore my work there. You'll find links to some of my speeches um, and books and all of that. Beautiful. I also I have a Twitter. I have a Twitter account. It's J-O-N underscore R-A-U-C-H. But I don't tweet all that much. I got bored with Twitter. It's so boring. I would much rather, you know, watch birds or something, watch actual birds outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jonathan Rausch, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. 